Glory to God in the highest. The angels come to earth, appearing there over the pasture where the shepherds were watching their sheep by night, proclaimed, Glory to God in the highest. Rise and go see the Christ, the Messiah, is born. And the shepherds went and they saw for themselves that what the angels proclaimed was true. And then we read that they left giving glory to God, to all that they encountered. This is a season where God wants to arrest our attention and our heart's affections such that once again, seeing His glory, we will respond like those first shepherds by giving Him glory. Now, there's a problem. We read in verse 1 here that the heavens declare the glory of God. What is it? What, what is a definition for glory? I, I challenged uh, someone this last week. I said, we talk about the glory of God. What, is, what do you think it is? And they said, you know, as a pastor, as a student of the Scripture, I've really struggled to have a succinct definition because I begin in defining the glory of God to describe all of His attributes, all of His temperaments, all of His deeds, and it becomes, I can't give a succinct definition. John Piper, pastor, theologian, says you can't define glory. He says that glory is a word like beauty, not a word like basketball. He said, if you describe a basketball, you can say, well, it is this shape. It's round. You can describe it by color. It's brown or dark orange. It bounces. You can describe something like a basketball. But trying to describe beauty is a great, great challenge. God's glory is His worth, His value. It's, his, it's everything that He is and has done. And when we behold it, we don't behold it simply finite. We can't just put it in a box Because it constantly grows. It's infinite. Last year, Phil Stogner would have described this much glory of God that I have seen in the Scriptures and in this world. This year, I've seen more. Aslan would tell uh, Lucy, who greeted Aslan on one of their returns. She had been there to Narnia before, and then she came a second time, and When Aslan appeared, she said, Aslan, the great lion of the Chronicles of Narnia, the Christ figure, you're you're so much larger than you were before. And Aslan said, child, 
I will be so every time you see me. The more we look at the beauty of God, the more that we look at His His personality, His temperament, His attribute, His deeds, His fame, the more we look, the more we see, the more it grows. In fact, I believe that it is a true uh, fact, a case can be made, that we will never stop beholding Him and seeing Him in eternity, and He will grow for all eternity more and more, not complex, but more and more beautiful. We'll see more in the the portrait of God, the, the details perhaps that we yet don't see. This morning... I want to look at how creation or nature shouts to us of God's glory. Nature has a voice, creation has a voice, and it speaks to us. I'm only going to look this morning, we're going to do this sermon in two parts. So I'm going to focus on the first seven verses this morning, and then next week, we'll look at the remaining verses. But God's glory is revealed in two specific ways. His glory is revealed in creation, and His glory is revealed in this, His Word. And this morning we want to look and see how His glory is revealed in creation. You look in verse 1. And it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now that is God here in the Hebrew. This is Yahweh. This is His name. And the Israelites, the singers, the congregation, the choir that would have sung this song will say, we are singing about the earth's proclamation of the beauty of of Yahweh, who is two things. The name Yahweh, every time it was on the lips of an Israelite, and every time I would submit that it's on our lips, communicated two great, vast truths. Number one, it communicated He's the Creator. He's the Creator. And if He is my Creator, He's the Creator of all things. For you see, wherever Israel was found, as they were in Egypt, as they were going through the wilderness, and then as they came into the land of Canaan with all of its idolatry, they were faced with other peoples who had other gods, and those gods were gods who created and managed the rivers, or God who created and managed the field. That God you want to pray to for a rich harvest. The God who created the sky and the the rain, that's who you want to pray to in a drought. But not Israel. Their God created everything, and therefore He managed everything. Secondly, this name of God, It meant He's a covenant God, a covenant-keeping God. Therein lies a plan and a reason for Him 
using His creation that He's designed purposefully to communicate His covenant, His plan for us as His people, and also His covenant keeping. Psalm 119, verse 64. The stead that the earth is full of the steadfast love of God, therefore I will keep your statutes. That was David as well. David is here looking at the heavens as he authors this. He is meditating on the heavens. He's looking to the expanse of the sky and he sees the day and he sees the night and he sees God's handiwork, God's hand in it. Not simply God's fingerprints as the creator, but he sees God's hand at work using that sunrise or using that sunset or using that that moon, using the vast expanse of the stars to remind us, to teach us, to train us that God keeps His promises to be our God and even upholds our end of the promise that we have dropped that we will be His people. Verse 2 says that these, this creation is like a book or a stereo, I mean a, a, a loudspeaker. It It has a speech in verse 2. It pours out a speech, uh, a language, but verse 3, there are not any words. In other words, nature, creation, it has a voice, it has a language, it's speaking to us, but it's not audible. The sounds of God's glory are not audible by the ear, but they're audible by the eye. In other words, it's a, it's a pictorial communication. Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, writing about this psalm, said this, about creation containing its own language, its own purposeful language. I am not ashamed to own that I believe that the whole universe, heaven and earth, air and seas, and the divine constitution and history of the Holy Scriptures be full of images of divine things as full as a language is of words. In other words, it's a language without words. And that the multitude of those things that I have mentioned are but a very small part of what is really intended to be signified and typified by these things. So, Jonathan Edwards, being a great preacher and theologian, we can get lost in a few of, uh, of his terms and words, but he's saying that there is in nature a language that is a type, it's, it's typology. For instance, we say that Jesus, to understand 
the work and the sacrifice of Jesus, look to the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Looking to the lamb, the lamb is not Jesus, but it's a type of Jesus. Abraham, he is brought outside of his tent. God has made a promise to him. I will be your God and you will be my people. There's just one problem, Abraham. You don't have any peoples. You and your wife do not have any children. But I will make your offspring my future people. You'll be like all of those stars. Jesus would say, don't worry about clothing. Look at the lilies of the field. Is there anything, not even Solomon in all of his garments was better robed than them. Consider the lilies. Consider the birds of the air. The Father feeds them. In other words, to, to look at a bird flying through the air to say, you know what? God is a creator. God is a covenant-keeping God. He's keeping His steadfast love even yet for His creation. God created that bird. God is feeding that bird. God created me. God will feed me. And God speaks to our heart through creation. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that the, the, the nature, the creation that abounds. Now this is more than simply a sunrise and a sunset. It's more than simply a starry night. It can be the ocean. It can be a wilderness area. It can be a tree, a tree serving as an as a audiovisual aid to understanding the majesty of God. And we see throughout the Scriptures, the writers of Scripture, the preachers of Scripture, having to use creation or you know, using creation to describe God and all of His ways and all of His glory and all of His might and all of His radiance and all of His holiness. Because it's that language, that pictorial language that God will use to communicate Himself. Because He values our understanding of Him that much. He does not, despite what many, many people outside of Christianity think, He does not give us a book that is abstract theology. Jesus Christ used parables. And wherever He would go, He would, he would talk and use often creation, language, to say, when connected to God, creation and nature proclaims God. It proclaims His existence as a creator. No man made that deep, deep ocean, that vast expanse of water. But He said if you look deeper, if you're paying attention, you can have the ears of your heart open and you can hear of His covenant-keeping promises. You can hear of His steadfast love. Romans 1 verse 20 says 
His invisible attributes. Namely, His eternal power. His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. The they being those who are not yet believers in God. That the invisible, the invisible glories of God are revealed every day. They abound every day to those whose eyes and ears are now open because they're born again. They've come alive so that they don't simply see the Son, S-U-N, but they now see in the Son, S-U-N, the Son, S-O-N. Jonathan Edwards, in preaching this, of Psalm 119, as he looks at verses 5 through uh, 6, here, Jonathan Edwards will not... I, I thought that maybe he was going uh, afield, but verses 5 and 6 here, all he does is talk about Jesus Christ being this son. David is meditating. He's focusing and reflecting, which is... A lost discipline for many of us. Sidebar, we so encourage the regular habit of daily communing with your God at Two Rivers. That is a quiet time or daily devotions or personal worship. Call it what you may, but time that is carved out to pray and speak with your God. To read and to see Him in His words. But you're not done yet. I want to encourage you, whatever your practice is, that you would spend as much time meditating on what you read as what you read. Now for some of you, I'm not asking you to add more time, even though that's commendable. For some of you, that means that you might have to read less so you can reflect more. David, David is doing that, and he is seeing God's glory. Jonathan Edwards, as he looks and he says, the sun is like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. He says, that's Jesus. Jesus is the bridegroom, and he's left the heavens. And like a strong man, he's run his course. Like a man who can face suffering. He is running his course of his life, and then his death, and his resurrection, and he ran it fueled by joy. Hebrews 12, 5. Jesus faced the shame and the suffering for the joy, you, that was set before him. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of him, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. In verse 12, we read, that the word of God here prompts the psalmist to say, declare me innocent from hidden faults. The sun comes up in the morning and with its light, it penetrates every nook and cranny. It exposes things. Things that were in the dark are now in its light. 
And Jonathan Edwards says, that's what the sun does when he shines upon us. He brings us from the dark into the light. And through the Holy Spirit shining in our hearts, those dark, those areas that we've kept in the dark, they're exposed. Why? Because God is malevolent and He wants us to grovel and stuff. No, because He's healing us and urging us, those things now exposed, to give to Him. That those sinful things that we keep in shame in the dark may now be confessed in their being exposed and given over to Him so that in His light it dies and it rules us no more. Do you see that? You know, I, we used to live in uh, Utah, and one thing that was always interesting is we'd pick people up from the airport and driving through the Wasatch Mountains. This is Utah where we lived, in the county that we lived, the city, community we lived, had three major ski slopes. And that was where they had the Winter Olympics. That's where the U.S. ski team and snowboard team is headquartered. But we had lived there so long that we didn't see the majesty any longer or the glory of God in the mountains. But visitors, as we're driving through the mountains to get to our home, they were just like, how do you get any work done in all of this grandeur and and beauty? Don't you just want to be out there hiking or skiing or mountain biking? Or how do you just sit here in your study, which I had a, a study that looked out over the range. How do you just sit here in your study? How do you get any study done and not just look over the mountains, and I said, well, I don't, I've grown so accustomed to them, I don't really see them anymore. How can we as Christians, how can we as Christians not make an idol of creation, but how can we look every day at creation all around us and worship? How can we respond to the heavens, creation that is declaring the glory of God? How can we plug into that proclamation so that our heart's response is to give glory to God? C.S. Lewis helps us. In his letters to Malcolm, he writes about meditation in a tool shed. Bear with me. This has helped so many people understand, understand how to capture from creation the proclamation of God's glory. How God's nature is speaking volumes to us and is speaking to us so that we can speak back to God with praise and adoration and worship of our lives. I was standing today in a dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside And through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. And instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, and above all, I saw no beam. Instead, now he's looking into the light. Before, he's been looking along the light, but now he's repositioned, and the light is falling right in his eyes. 
Before, he said, instead I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, 90 odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. He says here that he is learned that there's a difference in looking at creation and looking along creation. And looking at creation, I think about a seascape. Walking along the beach, how restful that is. Enjoying hearing the, the, the systematic, you could set your watch by it. Uh, you know, tide markers are, exist because it's so consistent. It's so organized. It's so precise. You hear the waves hit the shore. You see them coming from far off and then they crash. You see the vastness of the ocean. You hear the birds. You feel the sun on your body. That's a great experience. You're just looking at creation. And you're experiencing its benefits and its rest of nature. But the psalmist urges us to see more. See your creator and covenant-keeping God communicating His steadfast love to you. That He has made you and you are His son or daughter forever. To see that and all of that. It's not an art, but it becomes a lifestyle with us. It's something that I would, I envision two rivers, that if we capture this, what the psalmist and this congregation is singing, then we'll never look at a sunrise again the way we have in the past. We'll say, there is a sun that has risen in my life. Or as we look in the starry host of the night, we'll know that God is our creator and he is our covenant-keeping God. And we'll be able to look and judge and see his glory and the depths of his glory in all of creation. Now there is one who refuses to do that. There are those that idolize creation without the Creator. And there are those that Paul, writing in Romans, he says they will stand before God. And they can't say, I never knew of you, I never saw you, I never knew that you existed. Because he says they'll be found without excuse because my creation does proclaim my glory. As we come to this table, the greatest act of creation that proclaims God's glory is when Jesus became a created being, a man. He took flesh and we beheld in him God's glory. We beheld in Him a life 
of obedience and faith and trust that he offered that life in exchange for our faithlessness and our wonderings and our doubt. And God said, I will accept your life in exchange for their life through the cross. And a great exchange took place. And it was the greatest glory of the Son. Such love that He should die for us. And so we behold in Jesus, creation, God's steadfast love. We behold all the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As you come to this table this morning, you're going to take a piece of bread, wheat, flour, created. You're going to take a bit of wine or grape juice, juice from the vine. You're going to handle creation. And it's my prayer that it proclaims to you, it proclaims to you all of the grace, all of the glory of the Jesus that we profess to love and to serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would proclaim through this bread and this cup the glories of your Son, Jesus Christ. The earth indeed is full of your steadfast love. Would you teach us and give us and open our ears to hear the proclamation of such love. Father, there may be some who they see the sun and they see the moon and they see creation, but they don't see you. Would you open their ears? Would you open their eyes to see that you are the Creator and then to see that you're a God who keeps promises to be our God and to love us when we receive Christ. So Father, proclaim through these humble elements again your own glory as we receive them. And strengthen from that, we may bring you glory and glorify you as our God in the course of of our days ahead. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.